Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast about how American political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor at Marquette University. And today we are very excited to welcome two special guests. We have Suzanne Mettler, the John L. Senior Professor of American Institutions at Cornell University, and Robert Lieberman, the Krieger Eisenhower Professor at the Johns Hopkins University. And they are the authors of a wonderful and very timely new book, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. So welcome, Suzanne and Robert. So great to have you on our podcast. Thank you for having us. Delighted to be here. So let's get the conversation started by just kind of laying out the basic argument of the book. And the basic argument is that American democracy, and I'll quote here, reveals a far more tumultuous path than the familiar narrative suggests. And I assume by familiar narrative here, you mean the kind of boosterish narrative that we all get in high school history. Is that right, Suzanne? That's right. Yeah, I think that we tend to think of American democracy as being very stable and safe and secure and that it has been for a long time. And of course, we have the oldest still functioning constitution in the world. And the United States has been through a lot. And while the country was not, uh, had a lot of shortcomings of democracy and severe limitations at the very beginning, it has progressed over time. So that can make people fairly confident that democracy is, is healthy and well in the United States and that it long has been. But what really surprised Rob and I as we delved into this was that we found that there have been numerous periods of real fragility in the United States when it seemed that democracy was on a track to, instead of keep becoming more robust and expanding, that it was going to head in the other direction and it was going to deteriorate in some ways. And we found that in some periods there was just real danger of that happening, and in other periods it actually happened. So I think we want to start by going through each of the four threats that you identify, which are uh, political polarization, conflict over who belongs in the political community, growing economic inequality, and excessive executive power. So let's work through each of them briefly and explain, uh, if you could explain each, why they're a threat to democracy, and also what is, is there anything unusual about American democracy or American political institutions that makes them particularly susceptible uh, to these threats or makes these threats particularly common in the American context. So maybe, Robert, you could start with political polarization, then we could discuss that. Yeah, sure. Well, let me, let me first just lay out what the four threats are, and then we can talk a little bit about polarization. The four threats that we identify um, and these, um, we, under, we, we, we know that these conditions are threatening to democracy, mostly from studies, not of the United States, but of the rise and fall of democracy elsewhere. Scholars of comparative politics have spent a long time thinking about what makes for stable democracy, what conditions support democracy and democratization, but similarly, what conditions are, are um, dangerous for democracy. And so the four threats that we identify are, as, as, as you said, Lee, polarization, political polarization uh, is one. The second is conflict over um, who belongs as a full member of uh, society, what groups are sort of in and outside the boundaries of uh, political society and what rights and status different groups have. That's number two. Number three is high and rising economic inequality and number four is what we call executive aggrandizement, the growth of executive power at the expense of other kinds of political power. So, so to, to your question, polarization, polarization doesn't have to be harmful to democracy. It might mean just a range of choices that citizens have about policies and about approaches to governance. And that can be actually conducive to democracy. If we think about democracy as uh, a system of government in which those in power are held accountable for their decisions by competition. We want some degree of uh, variety and diversity in the views that are expressed and in the things that are that government contemplates. But polarization becomes problematic when politics and society are divided into 
um, the sort of us and them um, um, uh, divisions um, that we see now and that we've seen at various times really intensely over the course of American history. And the goal of politics is sort of transmuted from um, arguments about policy or the direction of government into a team sport, right? And the important thing becomes beating the other team rather than promoting or implementing a particular kind of policy program. Um, and and it's, it's that kind of, of, of polarization that we identify as particularly pernicious and dangerous to democracy. Um, and it all has all kinds of um, consequences that we observe today um, that other people have written very extensively about, um, you know, uh, this sort of teamsmanship um, that affects the way politicians and office holders uh, do their jobs, the kind of partisanship as a social identity that's become very important in American politics, and the kind of negative partisanship that we see um, increasingly in, um, in survey data, the idea that what's, it's more important to beat the other guy, to beat the other team, um, or your mo people are motivated more by dislike for the other team than by, li by like for their own team. So there are a number of ways in which polarization is actually harmful to democracy. If by, again, if by democracy, we mean some mechanism for accountable government. So I, I want to probe a few things here on this, this question of polarization, you know, which is you know, to say that we've, we've had polarization before in American politics, as you note in the book, uh, you know, in the 1890s, there was a high level of polarization, at least in terms of teamsmanship, but it, it seems like there is something that's really unique about this current polarization, the, the all-encompassing, fully binary nature of it. It, it, is that your sense? And you know, also to the extent that you, you have a, a comparative understanding of American polarization, is there something that you feel is truly unique about the polarization that we are experiencing now? Well, we have had very ardent polarization before. We had it in the 1790s and in, in the 1850s, the lead up to the Civil War, the 1890s. And, you know, as, as Rob is saying, you know, some polarization in society is a good thing. And, and between the political parties, it gives people choices and it actually makes democracy work well. But in these particular periods, polarization took on a, a character that was really problematic for democracy because um, the actors involved saw themselves involved in an existential conflict it took on the character of mortal combat. And then at some point you have one party or both that are unwilling to play by the rules that have been established for making the political system work and enabling political competition to go on. And you know, in some way with fair procedures that both sides can respect. At, at some point, one side or the other decides, we're tired of competing. And we want to stack the deck and simply be in power. And uh, that's when democracy is really endangered. Um, and so we've, we've seen that happen in these past periods. And our political system, while polarization has been growing now in the United States for several decades, and political scientists have done a lot of thinking about you know, what is the impact on legislation, whether major uh, laws get enacted or not and maintained and so on, um, and how it affects uh, voting behavior and the like. But while we were doing all of that work, we weren't really thinking about, is it dangerous for democracy? But I think in the past few years, there's growing concern that uh, this sort of existential mortal combat is what's at play. Can I just add one thing about uh, further about polarization? And that is, and this is a, about the argument of the book generally, that polarization can be dangerous by itself. Um, you know, it was, uh, it emerged in the 1790s, really right after the constitution was adopted and the government was formed. And we almost brought the government down in the first decade of the country. Um, but what's also really important is the way polarization 
combines with other threats. So in other periods when we've seen high polarization, it's occurred at the same time as conflict over race, for example, um, or particularly acute racial conflict, or particularly high economic inequality, as we saw um, in the 1850s and 1890s, though there's three threats combined. So polarization by itself can be a threat in the ways that Suzanne just um, outlined. But when it combines with other threats, it can, it can become even more acute. Yeah, so I want to jump in and, and ask some follow-ups about this specific relationship between polarization and race. One thing that's really struck me about this era and the era that we're in now, this, this Trump period, and actually that's been missing from what I like to call the democracy discourse, and I think this book has done a better job than much of that literature and actually um, bringing this in is the relationship between polarization and, and race. And the, the specific obsession that I've had is the fact that this is, if I'm not mistaken, the first time in American politics when attitudes about immigration and attitudes about kind of black-white relations or however we want to call that, the treatment um, and legal status of African-Americans has have loaded on kind of the same partisan factor. Usually they're usually they're opposites, right? To me that's like a really distinct feature of contemporary polarization and I am curious whether either of you have any thoughts about how that how this sort of evolution of one of the threats you identify who belongs in the political community how that relates to the question of polarization in the 21st century. Yes, yeah, so we've, we've learned from these scholars who study the deterioration of democracy around the world that conflict over who belongs in, in the political community, who's a member, what the status is of different groups, that this can really be a problem for democracy. And particularly when there is some formative rift in the creation of the nation that excludes a particular group or groups and then that's not resolved over time. And you can keep going back to it again and again. And certainly in the United States, this has been the case with race and, uh, and the um, white supremacy being like this kind of underground stream in the American polity that it can, it's, it can seem like it recedes for a period and then it gets tapped again. Um, and we've found that when you have high polarization, um, and if, if that is accompanied by division over race, over one of these formative rifts, that things are particularly likely to go off the rails. Um, it's, a, it's a particularly combustible kind of, of combination. And polarizers like to use those dynamics to their own advantage. Um, so in the 1890s, um, we learned that you had, you know, this high level of polarization and white Democrats in the South actually uh, used white supremacy as a way to rally their supporters and pull people back into the fold to support them. Uh, and um, we're seeing a similar kind of division now in terms of the combination of polarization and uh, this division over race. And when we look at the contemporary political party system, and I, you know, I, I should say, you know, in, in the United States, you could say, well, there's always some, you know, racism in society, but why is it more problematic in some periods than others for the state of, of democracy? It depends upon how it maps onto the party system, we learned. And so in the contemporary party system, uh, we found that Democrats and Republicans have really been diverging in their views about race over the past few decades. And we look at um, measures of racial resentment and see that Republicans have been moving more in the direction of when they're asked a lot, lot of questions about racial inequality, blaming African-Americans themselves for it. Um, and Democrats, meanwhile, have been moving in the other direction and becoming more convinced that systemic racism is a problem and that that's what's perpetuating inequality. And so um, I think you're right about the mapping of those attitudes onto attitudes about immigration, which, you know, not too many decades ago in the United States, 
um, was a cross-cutting issue where both parties were internally divided over immigration, but it's been sorting itself out now and mapping more onto these other attitudes about race in a way that I think is, is really combustible in combination with polarization. Let's bring in the, the third threat here, which is growing economic inequality. And, and certainly by any measure, uh, we are in an incredibly economically unequal time now in American politics. And you know, this also was a, a, a big issue in the 1890s, 1900s. And that was at the same time that there was high political polarization and also this conflict over who belongs in the political community. I, I mean, I think democracy scholars have, have long thought that high level of economic inequality creates tremendous political instability, largely because the, the rich fear that the, if the poor gain too much power, they're, they're going to soak the rich. And you know, last, in a recent episode, we had Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson on the podcast talking about their new book, which uh, uh, develops this idea, I guess, they, uh, which really builds on the work of Daniel Ziblatt about the conservative dilemma, which is that in moments of growing economic inequality, the challenge of the conservative party is that they can't win on economic issues, so they have to turn up the racial dimension, the social dimension of political conflict, which then contributes to this conflict over who belongs in the political community, which, uh, as you know, it also probably turbocharges polarization. So, do I'd love for you to talk about the threat of growing economic inequality. And, and also my broader question here is, are the first three threats really kind of all part of one meta threat or is it possible or, or can we think of them separately? And you know, I, I want to turn this question to Rob. Yeah, well, first of all, Lee, I think you're absolutely right about the dynamics involved in um, with economic inequality as a threat to democracy. I mean, we often think that the reason we should be worried about economic inequality is that the have-nots will rise up and overthrow the haves. But in fact, the dynamic is really the reverse, that the rich, uh, the wealthy become nervous um, that the poor and middle class will gain power. And they try to use their power and influence, the wealthy try to use their power and influence to enact policies um, that protect their own and even expand their own wealth. So the, the risk is excessive power on the part of the wealthy. And we saw the, the exact dynamic that, that Paul and Jacob, um, uh, Paul Pearson and Jacob Hacker write about and that Daniel Ziblatt writes about in the comparative context. That is that the uh, conservative parties, that the party of the wealthy will, as Suzanne said, use racial division, or in more recent, uh, at a more recent period, conflict over immigration, as a divisive political tool in order to try and bolster their own power and cement their own gains. But another thing that we've observed over the, over the various periods that we're, we're talking about is that the, the wealthy and, and their political leaders who serve them don't really care about democracy as much in these periods. When economic inequality is high and when it becomes a threat, the wealthy will tend to um, do what it takes uh, regardless of its, the implications for democracy in order to cement their, their economic gains. I mean, you see this in the dynamic that Paul and Jacob write about um, in which the Republican Party in recent decades has been you know, laser focused on uh, things like tax cuts and deregulatory policies that tilt the economic playing field and economic policy strongly in their favor, even though those are extremely unpopular policies when measured by public opinion surveys. And so I think that same dynamic carries through uh, all of many of the periods that we look at um, where, the, where economic conflict between haves and have-nots sort of is layered on top of these other threats, and the wealthy use racial conflict or conflict over immigration as a tool, um, they stoke polarization because it serves their economic interests. Now, uh, you know, 
are these independent or are we really describing one meta threat? <clears throat> I mean, it is true that at a number of times in American history, these three threats, polarization, conflict over membership, and economic inequality have occurred together. That happened in the 1850s in the run-up to the Civil War. It happened in the 1890s. Um, and it's happening again uh, today, along with the fourth threat, executive aggrandizement. So, but, but just the fact that they sort of co-occur doesn't by itself imply that they're really just descriptions of the same thing. Um, and if you look at recent, you know, you look at the sort of dynamics of the last few decades, you can see that they sort of operate on their own temporal scale and on their own timeline. Uh, so economic inequality in the United States has been on the rise really since the 1970s, since the oil shocks and other economic crises of the 1970s, which um, sort of ended the 30 years of growth and prosperity after World War II and sent the United States into a much more difficult economic period. Polarization really has been on the rise since the 1980s, stoked by Newt Gingrich uh, and the Republicans. This is a story that E.J. Dionne and Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein, among others, have told extremely well. Um, Julian Zelizer in his new book uh, describes Gingrich's role in, the, in, in stoking uh, polarization. And racial resentment, as Suzanne says, has sort of been a constant in American history. The question is, when does it rise to the surface and when does it, as, as Julia said a few minutes ago, when does it coincide with partisan divisions in a way? So yes, these three threats have, have occurred at the same time in a number of cases, but they're really largely independent of each other. Um, and what's really been revealing and interesting to us in researching this history is the sort of way the ebb and flow of these different threats have come together in different ways in different configurations at different times. I, I've got a, a question about the executive, so the growth of executive power. I really, I was really endeared to your, your description because you start with FDR, which I think is obviously is not the beginning of a powerful presidency, but I think it's important for people in the contemporary political context to contemplate how problematic um, some of the things that FDR did were. I've written about that at 538 and almost gotten uninvited for my own family's holiday. But I'd like to just uh, get one of you or both of you to, to lay out what, what we mean by executive aggrandizement and, and maybe how that how that fits in. I mean, that's really critical to your description of the Trump impeachment, I think how that fits in with the polarization piece and the other pieces to make this moment a particularly challenging one. Yeah, uh, executive aggrandizement is in a way the most, uh, most interesting of the, of the four. And Julia's right, it doesn't start with Franklin Roosevelt. The presidency, which in the 19th century had been a relatively uh, weak institution and more or less secondary to Congress in the federal government, the executive branch and the presidency in particular begin to gain power uh, in the earlier 20th century, Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, and other presidents uh, both expand the scope of presidential power. But what we write about in the book is the way in which Franklin Roosevelt comes to power and assumes the presidency at a moment of just extraordinary sort of existential crisis, not just for the United States, but for the whole liberal democratic capitalist project in North America and Europe. Something that Ira Katznelson wrote about in his phenomenal book, Fear Itself, um, a few years ago. And people in, uh, people in the United States, liberals in the United States, are looking to Roosevelt to assume real, you know, almost strongman dictatorial power in order to get the United States out of a depression that it had been suffering from for three years. This was sort of the bottom of the depression um, in 1933. It had been going for three and a half years. And, you know, Roosevelt didn't seize dictatorial power in the way that um, another leader might have done. But what, what's important to recognize is that the growth in the power of the presidency that comes beginning in the 1930s and afterwards is, is not a sort of authoritarian seizure of power the way we might see 
in a real dictatorship, but it was a series of grants of power by Congress. Congress acceded to um, the growth of presidential power, direct uh, power to make policy as in trade agreements, for example, the growth of a large executive branch, a large White House staff, a large administrative state that's able to uh, facilitate presidential direction of policy and a rebalancing of the sort of constitutional um, engineering in favor of the president and in favor of the of a, of a much amplified and much expanded executive branch. And, uh, and it's that executive branch, that notion of presidential power that the president um, the idea that the president is at the center of the political system, the idea that it's the president's job to propose policy and to execute policy in a, in a sort of perpetual emergency kind of way that evolves gradually over the course of the 20th century so that by the time, say, Nixon becomes president, he's sitting on top of a very large executive establishment with uh, enormous uh, power that allows him to... Um, try and turn uh, the presidency to his own personal and political advantage. And that speaks to another uh, point about executive uh, power and executive aggrandizement is that again, it's, um, it's potentially dangerous on its own, but when it's combined with other threats, in particular when executive power is combined with polarization, it becomes extremely tempting for presidents then to uh, use the accumulated power of the office of the president and the, of the executive branch on their own behalf, either for personal gain or for political advantage. You know, if the president is, if, if we think about political parties as teams and the teams are extremely competitive um, and really hate each other, and we think of the president as the captain or the coach of one of the teams, um, and he's sitting there in the White House with this extraordinary set of levers that he can use to manipulate the government or even to deploy um, uh, 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 tactics on his, on, on his party's behalf or on his own behalf, um, you know, that's an um, extraordinary opportunity and it's a big temptation, political temptation for presidents. So the danger in political, in, in, in the growth of executive power is not just that you get a sort of renegade president who's gonna do bad things, although that has happened, um, but again, it's the combination of executive power and, and, and this, this expanded executive power with the other threats, and particularly polarization, that, um, that poses a special threat to democracy. The book is, it's a really great read in terms of the, uh, the storytelling of these different moments. Um, and, you know, if, if we were recording a much longer podcast, we would probably go through each of the stories uh, but here, I think it's really valuable to focus on the 1890s, because I think that's the episode that probably has the most parallels to today, in which three of the four threats uh, were flashing uh, red alert, red alert, red alert. Uh, so I'd love it uh, if you could take us through what you learned about the 1890s and, you know, to, to what extent those lessons and parallels are relevant for today. And also, as you do that, I, I'd love to, if, if you would kind of contemplate what might have happened if there had been excessive executive power then, because that's, that was the one element that was missing from the 1890s story. Okay, well, I might begin with a story that, um, that Rob and I found very illuminating. And that is what happened on November 10th, 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina. So here you had uh, a city where there'd been a black middle class on the rise. And uh, you had a biracial government um, because what was happening in the South at that point is, uh, you know, African-Americans had, had gained the right to vote um, coming out of the Civil War and continued to practice that right to vote even when Reconstruction ended and continued to run for office and, um, and thousands of African-Americans ran for local office and, and got elected and, and some were serving as members of Congress and a couple of governors in the South. 
Um, and so this is happening uh, well into the 1890s. And in North Carolina, African Americans running as Republicans uh, were, had been losing to the white Democrats. But then there was the emergence of the Populist Party. Um, and uh, so this you know, widespread agrarian movement across the country uh, that was really gaining steam in the 1890s. And in North Carolina, the Populists and the uh, Republicans realized that if they could coordinate their efforts and had what they called a fusion ticket, they could manage to beat the Democrats. And so they began to do that during the 1890s. And so they are, are serving in government at all levels in the state, including in Wilmington and the spy racial government. On the morning of November 10th, 1898, 2,000 men who belonged to paramilitary units gathered at the city armory and they marched to the offices of the black owned newspaper called the Daily Record. And they barge in, they um, spread kerosene everywhere, light a match, go outside, and they watch as the building burns. And then they proceed that day to march through black neighborhoods, killing people as they go. They killed hundreds of people as the day wore on. And they also dragged from their homes lots of prominent leaders and took them to the train station and forced them to leave town. Uh, and then by uh, later in the afternoon, the white leaders of, this, of the Democratic Party that had organized all of this forced the public officials of city government uh, at gunpoint to resign their positions. And they installed in their place their own handpicked uh, Democrats. And uh, once the, this day, this coup d'etat, was over and they had you know similar things happened across the state although wilmington was really ground zero of their efforts uh, then within the coming months the democratic party managed to change the laws in the state to enact uh, poll taxes and literacy tests that would disenfranchise african americans going forward this while this happened in a really flagrant way there in north carolina the same kind of dynamic was happening in states all over the south um, of the, the disenfranchisement of African-Americans. And this allowed the, the Democratic Party to then uh, proceed without competition for decades to come. For African-Americans, it meant that once they lost political rights, then they lost everything else as well. You had the establishment of Jim Crow segregation after this, the de demise of, of civil rights and civil liberties. And it lasts all the way until the 1960s. So this is a major backsliding of American democracy. And you know, we tend to think of that story as being concentrated in the South. But it was very striking that national leaders who were Republican presidents at that point in time really looked the other way, despite the fact that there were pleas from African Americans in Wilmington, for example, for help and McKinley sends no help. Um, and then all of this disenfranchisement is happening while Theodore Roosevelt is president. Um, and then by the time Taft is president, he's saying that it's actually appropriate to remove this uh, irresponsible group of voters from the electorate, to use his term. So in fact, there's complicity by uh, by leaders at the national level, by presidents. Now, if we'd had executive aggrandizement at the time, we might have seen more forceful action on the part of those Republicans. And of course, this was a change because in the late 19th century, the Republican Party in the North was supporting, uh, up until the 1890s, was supporting efforts to, uh, to uh, protect the vote for African Americans, and they thought this would be to their political advantage. But by the time you get into the 1890s, they're pulling, the party is beginning to pull back from that. A younger generation of leaders finds it not worthwhile. They're casting their sights elsewhere and they really lose interest. And, you know, the backdrop to this, as I was saying, is of course the rise of the, um, the populist party and uh, the 1896 election uh, with William Jennings Bryan on the ballot for the Democrats um, running against McKinley. And uh, this was a moment in the United States where it seemed that, you know, possibly 
you would have workers and farmers working together in the Populist Party. There was some efforts among national leaders of the Populist Party to make that happen. Um, and the national leaders also spoke out on behalf of protecting the voting rights of African Americans in the South. So there was some glimmer of hope that that kind of, that you know the country would actually become more fully democratized at the time. Um, but what ends up happening is that uh, th this is a period of high economic inequality. And in that election of 1896, wealthy interests mobilized um, perhaps as never before and helped to get McKinley elected. Ultimately, workers in the North seemed to feel that uh, it was more in their interest to stand with him than with this Democratic Party that they thought of as more agrarian. So you had the combination of, of these different forces going on, of polarized parties that, uh, as Francis Lee has shown us, the Democratic and Republican parties were very competitive in that time period as they are today. And so they are competing tooth and nail. And then we also see the kind of polarization that was happening within the South um, that, that helps to uh, illuminate what was going on in the Wilmington coup d'etat, where you have the Democrats against the Republicans and the populist more at that um, regional level. Um, and that's combined with the forces of conflict over race and white supremacy. So it was really instructive to see that the leaders of, of what was going on in North Carolina were business people who were running the show and who were helping to orchestrate all the events that led up to November 10th, 1898. But what they managed to do was to gain a lot of supporters who they could um, use the kind of language about our heritage is under attack, our way of life is changing and we need to protect it. These are the kinds of buzz terms that are used when there's conflict over who belongs as a member of, of, of the political community. And it helped them to get uh, low income and middle income whites who had been gravitating toward the populist party to come back into the fold of the Democratic Party and to support them. So you had this combustible combination of polarization, conflict over who belongs along lines of race, and then economic inequality is this backdrop. And one thing I would point out is that it's easy to miss the force of economic inequality, I think, in the 1890s as it is today. It happens, a lot of it out in the open. I mean, some of it happens in stealthy ways, but a lot of it happens out in the open. But our attention tends to be drawn to uh, the conflict over who belongs, these kinds of cultural battles. But what's happening at the same time is that those forces are working in tandem. Uh, so, you know, in a nutshell, to, to sum up part of what was happening in a, a pretty complex period, these forces aligned and there was real backsliding for American democracy and it lasted for decades to come. Okay, so this is all like really fascinating context. And now that we've kind of talked about how these factors have played out and some of the examples that you raise in the book, I want to raise a kind of meta question about what we mean when we're talking about democracy and different how you might respond to kind of a different conceptualization of the evolution of American democracy. So one thing that strikes me is that there's a kind of multifaceted definition of democracy in in your book, um, where you speak obviously to the to the important concerns of of this sort of self determination, right? People's ability to rule themselves, also the sort of elite-centered version of democracy that's focused on how we hold leaders accountable, um, rule of law, features like that. Um, but also lurking, I think, in in your story and in the in many other stories like it that have come out in the Trump era is is an emphasis on stability. Um, and that's obviously that's obviously really important. And so, first of all, you know, I obviously invite you to tell me if I've, I've characterized this incorrectly. But also, I want to pose kind of my question, I often put this to my to my students and also to other people writing about democracy, is what if we think about America as having only been a democracy for about 50 years? You know, what if we think about 
prior to 1965, we just don't count as a democracy because of the systematic disenfranchisement and vi- and violence toward a consistent segment of the population and, you know, not allowing Black Americans to participate in the polity. I think if we were if we were comparativists and we were looking at another country, we might just say, well, that country was not a democracy. So I wonder what we how does this change if we change if we sort of shake this all up and say, look, we do we had a democratic transition in 1965, and we with the Voting Rights Act, and we are currently in a state of democratization, maybe unconscious democratization, because most Americans don't think about ourselves as living in a in a new and transitional democracy. Does that, do the four factors potentially still fit into that kind of framework? Or is there is there a reason why that's totally off and wrong? This is just, this has just been kind of the question I've been kicking around for the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm delighted to have you two on to, to ask you about it. I think that's a really important question. And it's a very, very important observation about the history of democracy or democratization in the United States. And I think it's, I think it's more or less right that the United States was not a complete democracy or a fully fledged democracy until the 1960s and the 1970s, when finally, after hundreds of years of struggle, um, voting rights and civil rights were protected in some measure for African Americans. So I, I think that's I think it's a mistake to think about democracy as sort of a binary variable, as an on-off switch. Either you are or you aren't. Um, The way we conceive of democracy, and we fully concede, or I don't even think it's a concession. We agree, I think, with that characterization of American political history. But I think it's important to recognize that the United States Constitution set up a system that had democratic characteristics. It was centered on elections. Um, it was it was a system of mechanisms to hold those in power accountable to voters, recognizing that voters initially were a very small subset of the population, and to promote um, competition among um, among potential office holders, among viewpoints, among policy ideas, ultimately among uh, parties, although that wasn't part of the original conception, as a way of organizing and of channeling and of um, limiting power. So to that extent, I think we can think of democracy in the United States as an idea or as an aspiration or as a set of principles that over time have been expanded and, and the boundaries of who's included in the exercise of those principles has been expanded. Now, we often, we often think about the history of American democracy, and I think Suzanne alluded to this a little bit earlier in the broadcast. We, we often think about the history of American democracy as a story of sort of just progressive democratization or progressive expansion or progressive exclusion, right? First, it was only white men with property, and then it was white, all white men in the 19th century, and then African Americans got the vote after the Civil War, and yes, then there's that unfortunate, um, you know, 75 years in the late 19th, early 20th century when they lost it, but they got it back, and women got the vote in 1920, and so on and so forth, an anniversary that we're celebrating this year. What we've discovered is that the story was actually much more contentious, much more back and forth, and much more fraught than that story of just sort of progressive liberalization or progressive expansion. And so I think it's much more fruitful to think about not, you know, well, the United States was never a democracy, and then all of a sudden in 1965, it became a democracy. But to think about democracy as a continuum, as a spectrum, as a, and what's important in thinking about the historical development is the direction that we're going, right? Are we moving forward or are we at a moment when there's real risk of moving backward? And all of the periods that we write about are periods when both from the perspective of us 
today looking back and from the perspective of participants at the time were moments when the country was in real danger of moving backward in its commitment to these principles and, and structures and institutions um, that had been set up in uh, the late, late 18th century. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the United States w was not a full democracy until the 1960s. That's absolutely true. And it's still, um, there's still ways in which as a democratic system, it could be improved today. Um, but I think, you know, uh, but I think what's, what's really important to understand and to think about it, to consider is the question of democratization. Are we moving in the right direction? or are we moving in the wrong direction? Are we moving toward greater democracy or less democracy? And, uh, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln talked about American democracy in exactly these terms in a number of, time, a number of, in a number of his most famous uh, speeches at Gettysburg in the second inaugural. He talked about um, uh, United, uh, American democracy's unfinished business, right? It's always unfinished. And I think one of the things that we're trying to, um, to uncover is the way the, the the things that might stand in the way of you know finishing the work or moving toward finishing the work whether i don't know if it'll ever be finished but it's the it's the act of finishing it's the act of moving forward that's really important so uh it seems like we're moving backwards now uh and it seems like we've got a lot of work to do and i think that i mean the, the i mean the real gut punch in reading this book is that there are four threats and we've got all four. So this is, you know, this is like a, a serious four alarm fire going on in our democracy. And the question, uh, you know, this is the big question on everybody's mind is like, you know, are we just gonna be in this spiral of decline and decay and crisis or, is there a way forward? And you know, I mean, it seems like you know one one optimistic reading of the history is you know yeah we've we've had these moments of backsliding before, but in all these moments you know we managed to weather those storms. Maybe it was you know three steps forwards, two steps back, but you know in the broader narrative we we've become a you know a fuller democracy over time. Although there's been some backsliding, so. I mean, can we get it back together? And if so, what does it take? Is there something, is this just a, another crisis and renewal? Are we, are we in, about to enter another moment of transition and transformation? And if so, what would that even look like? Like, what would it take to get us there? Do we need institutional changes? Is it just about leadership or, you know, like, where are we going? What do we do? And I'd love for you to, to both kind of weigh in on that question, starting with Suzanne. Well, you know, I think that we often think of if democracy dies, it happens because there's tanks in the streets and there's a military takeover. But what we've learned from the scholars of who study countries around the world is that these days, which, what is much more typical is a more gradual process where elections are still held, but there's some hollowing out of many features of democracy that make it less meaningful over time, and you move toward competitive authoritarianism instead. And so we, as we're writing the book, we you know, thought about these four pillars of democracy and then kept track of what's happening to each of them. And there is real deterioration happening these days um, on, on each of the four pillars. And the deterioration predates the Trump presidency. There was already, uh, for free and fair elections, we already had the rise of restrictive voter identification laws, so making voting more, more restrictive in recent years, for example. But, and, and then, um, you know, with Russian interference in the 2016 election and the political parties not taking uh, not managing to enact strong legislation in Congress um, afterwards to try to do something about that. But, uh, but tr President Trump has certainly exacerbated um, this deterioration of, of democracy um, by things like for free and fair elections 
uh, inviting the president of the Ukraine to intervene in the 2020 election, uh, and then uh, many uh, attacks on the rule of law, uh, the emoluments clauses being uh, violated, uh, the unwillingness of the White House to comply with congressional oversight and subpoena requests, and using the Department of Justice as you know his own personal agency, in a sense, to protect him personally and for partisan purposes, um, and, uh, and, and numerous other things we could mention. And many of these things are wedded together with the failure to recognize the legitimacy of the opposition. You know, this one moment of that begins before Trump is president, and that is uh, when Justice Scalia died and, uh, and President Obama then put forward uh, Merrick Garland to be the next Supreme Court justice. And the Senate refused to even consider it, even though it was you know, six months before, um, or, or five months before the presidential elections, that it was too close to an election to do that. That's a, a failure to recognize the legitimacy of the opposition. That you know, when, when one party wins office, they, they actually gain the right to govern um, and, uh, and so on. And integrity of rights, um, you know, a, for the first few years of the Trump presidency, a lot of the offenses to rights were really more a matter of, of rhetoric than action. But I think as time goes on, you know, we're seeing greater concerns for the integrity of rights, as illustrated by the tear gassing of protesters, for example, and the sending in of federal troops uh, to Portland that are, you know, these unidentified forces. Um, and uh, lots of threats against the press. Um, and so I would say that, you know, each of these features of democracy is under duress today, and, and there is real chipping away that's happening. And so, you know, the question is, where do we go from here? What Rob and I think is that, you know, when people are active in politics, they have all sorts of priorities that they, they might um, be thinking about, their, um, their ideological uh, persuasion, their, their values in that sense, their material interests, their partisanship. But we would like to add another to the mix, and we think it needs to be a top priority, and that is protecting democracy itself, protecting these pillars. And it's interesting, as divided as the country is, when you look at public opinion polls, Americans, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, value these key features of democracy. So uh, the question is, how can we protect them and recognize that you know, we can have our differences, we can uh, over public policy issues, we can compete in elections, but in order to carry out that game of politics, we need to reinforce the rules of the game and these, these pillars. I think that what has been happening in recent years is that while you know, both parties have led to some extent to this level of polarization, the, we found that the Republican Party has been more willing to part ways with the rules of the game. And that means that it falls to the Democratic Party as the opposition party to stand up for democracy and to make that a priority. And uh, we actually have um, some renewed sense of hope now in recent months, because when we look at issues about conflict over membership, it's really striking how since the protests began over the death of George Floyd, over the killing of George Floyd, that um, more Americans than ever seem to be concerned about racial discrimination and inequality. And whereas in the past, when we've looked at how a lot of these crises of democracies have been settled uh, in the American past, it's been a really very sobering story to us because often it has to do with reinforcing racial hierarchy in society and politics. But there's a chance that this time, Americans more broadly can come together around um, the, the cause of can we become truly a multiracial democracy uh, and ensure the rights of all people. Uh, so, so that's our hope going forward and, and that's what we think is necessary. Thank you, Suzanne. So um, as we wrap up, I wanna just briefly respond to some of, some of the issues that you've raised and then invite you to um, wrap up with any final thoughts. 
But, you know, I, I just wanted to point out, I really take Robert's point about democracy not being a binary. Um, I think I spent a full year of my life in graduate school arguing with people about this. I don't know if it, <laughs> I think I argued all different sides of it, and I don't know if any of it was very productive. But I do think, so I think on the one hand, what, what this book really contributes in a a really helpful way is not only to talk about democracy on that continuum, but to really break down the different facets of it and and to think about how those facets might move differently at different points and also how they might affect each other. It really opens up the space to, to talk more about that. Um, at the same time, it also seems to me like there is this kind of argument for at a certain point, and this is, you know, the other thing I was thinking about is you talked about moving in a direction is is how we know you know which direction we're moving in we're really we're quite you know it's quite obvious right now that people feel like things are going really badly but i do also think that if as suzanne pointed out with this kind of recent round of, of uprisings i think with the the range of types of, of people who are currently in positions of power in American society relative even to, you know, 20 years ago, the gains on LGBT rights that, that have happened that, you know, we have gone in some positive directions. So like, how do we know, you know, which, which direction we're going in? And also are there to quote our, some of our friends um, in this democracy world, the Bright Line Project, like, how, are there bright lines past which we can no longer call ourselves a democracy? And in, I realize I'm like, sort of firing questions like a, the 4th of July the finale here, but um, you're giving me so much to think about. With regard to Suzanne, you, know, you said rules of the game a lot. And that, I think a lot about rules of the game precisely for this reason, right? That we've seen this asymmetry in the national parties and also at the state level in terms of Republicans and Democrats being willing to kind of jettison both formal and informal rules about the conduct, um, how much you consolidate your power, right, against against your political opponents. And this is, I think, constitutional hardball is the is the phrase that was developed in the legal literature and that Ziblatt and Levitsky use. But also... The Floyd protests and many of the examples in your book, um, the 1850s come to mind also, are times in which the pushback precisely is against the rules of the game. It's a different game, but it's a game in the same system. And so we're sort of, I think this is one of the real challenges for people who are trying to preserve the role of institutions, the role of norms, is that sometimes norms cut in a pro-democracy way, and sometimes the norms and rules cut against, right? And so in some ways, political change happens when people step out of that rule framework and say, no, this this is wrong, and we're taking to the streets, or we're pulling down the statues, or we're, we're disobeying the laws, right? And that's, I think that it's challenging for, at least for me, um, for this, you know, kind of discourse generally to contend with that with that tension. And I know that I probably you both want to respond and Lee also wants to respond. So I will uh, end there, but thank you so much for giving us so much to think about. Yeah. So I just, you know, want want to offer a few, few takeaways here from the conversation and, you know, turn it, turn it back to our guests. And, you know, I think, I mean, for me, the the really important, uh, I guess there's two really important things about this book. And one is just this sense that, you know, American democracy is this evolving, changing, sometimes falling down, sometimes building back up experiment that we are still engaged in. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's been tumultuous. There's been conflict at, at many times. And, you know, uh, frankly, that's the thing that gives me hope and optimism is, you know, that, that this is, Certainly not the first time that American democracy has gone sideways or downhill. And I mean, the, the you know, the, the flip side to, to those declines are the moments in which we actually come together as a nation and then try to make ourselves more democratic. And we often do th- do so in these you know, quite, you know, super majoritarian ways. I mean, the, the civil rights uh, and the voting rights legislation of the 1960s, I mean, there's there's huge supermajority bipartisan support for all of that. So, you know, it, certainly it's possible. But on the, the other hand, there's this kind of dark pessimism that pervades the, the, uh, the times and the mood and the analysis, which is that, you know, 
we've had these moments of decline of, of crisis and renewal, but it's never been quite like it is now. And we've never had those four threats together. And, and this is a, a, a really big challenge. So it sort of makes me feel like either we've got to do something really big, you know, really just like more than just saying we, we just have to realize that we need to protect democracy and the rules of the game. Something even bigger to say, like, well, like, what are the actual rules of the game that would make America more democratic? And what, what are the what are the fundamental values that we hold dear? And that, you know, we, we did a, a few episodes on on that question. So I think I think it's incredibly useful to understand our history. But, you know, in some ways, I feel like we are in really uncharted territory where we need to think just really boldly about what it would mean to make America work in a, in a, in a moment in which things are, are really different. And, you know, particularly this question of becoming a multi-ethnic democracy, which is a, a tremendous challenge. So I, I, that's my, my kind of takeaway. I just, you know, uh, turn it over to our guests for a, for a quick takeaway if, if either of you want to have a, a final point. Yeah, I, those are both great points. And let me let me respond just as quickly as I can to I think this answers points that both Julia and Lee made about the sort of um, role of institutions and stability and rules, the rules of the game in um, sort of managing either progress or decline. Um, and talk a little bit about the 1850s, which we haven't talked so much about. Um, so for decades at the beginning of the 19th century, American democracy seemed relatively um, stable, uh, um, largely because, or at least in part because, the party system was able to keep slavery off the agenda. No one, um, you know, people, uh, there were challenges to it, an abolition movement was growing, um, but it was not a central feature of political conflict for most of the first half of the 19th century. That was largely true because of the three-fifths rule of the Constitution, which gave the South, the slaveholding South, extra power in Congress um, and extra power in choosing the president. And so as long, and so the South was able to um, sort of confidently believe that slavery um, was safe politically because they were able to dominate the national government um, because they had this power boost from the constitutional provision. Beginning in really in the late 1840s, and this is what escalated in the 1850s and made the 1850s into a moment of crisis, um, was that the tide of, of public opinion, the, the tide of, of a population, um, the tide of power began to turn against the South, and the South began to realize through a series of crises in the 1850s, some of which we talk about in the book, the South began to realize that they could no longer sort of hide behind these constitutional rules and adhere to these principles of democracy and save slavery. And when push came to shove toward the end of the decade, the South decisively chose slavery over upholding the principles and rules of American democracy as they'd been practiced up until that point. And the South seceded after Lincoln was elected and, um, and the country devolved into an extremely bloody and destructive civil war. So, you know, I think, I mean, that, you know, that's, that's the ultimate risk is that the rules get in the way of, the, of a democratic outcome, right? Um, I think we can agree that that the the fundamental challenge of the Civil War was that democracy and, and enslavement of millions of people are just not compatible with each other, right? And that's the conflict that was fought out in the Civil War. So I think you know that's a real that's a real challenge, and one of the things that that um, was illuminating for us to discover as we marched through these um, historical periods to think about this. I guess a more up, uplifting note. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about, look, now switching gears to the contemporary period, I think one of the interesting things about the contemporary moment is that in a way, you know, all of the threats are out in the open and the fight over the pillars of democracy are being, are very public, right? It's very easy to understand what the threats to free and fair elections are in the United States right now. 
you know, and we saw this play out, um, we see this play out with voter suppression, with the hollowing out of the Voting Rights Act and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we see the complications in running an election during a pandemic that makes people worried about um, the integrity of the upcoming election, you know, but, but it's all being played out in the open. And the same with, with conflict over the rule of law, all of the difficulty that the Trump family and the Trump administration have had with, um, with prosecutors in Congress and so on and so forth. We see um, the, you know, idea of the very idea of a legitimate opposition, the idea that if we disagree um, and are on opposite sides of a political question, we're, we're competitors, but not enemies. Uh, we see that under threat from through the president's rhetoric um, and actions um, periodically. And we see the integrity of rights being hollowed out. Um, and I think as Suzanne pointed out a few minutes ago, you know, the, the depth and extent of the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests that have emerged in the last few months after the George Floyd murder and, and, and other incidents like it, have begun to shine a kind of real spotlight on some of these inequities and challenges to democracy that I think um, if, we, if, if Americans respond in the right way, or if enough Americans respond in the right way, I think might leave us with a little bit of hope. I really enjoyed this conversation and, and thank you so much for, for having us on. I think that it's really easy to take democracy for granted. I think, you know, growing up in the latter part of the 20th century, it, it seemed like basically things were okay. There were ways that democracy could be um, improved and perfected, but it didn't seem to be fundamentally in danger. But we're in a situation now where all four threats have been on the rise and they've come into a confluence with each other and they're really raging. And so it's a serious time and we might wanna be complacent thinking, you know, the United States has gotten through things before, but when we study that history, we find that this democracy has been very fragile and things have actually gone off the rails at times. And the way that crises have been settled is uh, not a way that we would aspire to at this point in our history. So um, what it really means to go back to the point Rob made earlier of, of taking inspiration from uh, Abraham Lincoln, that democracy is unfinished work. And Americans today really need to be vigilant about it and to, uh, to come together to protect democracy. Um, and it, you know, arguably it has to happen again and again in every generation, but it certainly has to happen now. Thank you, Suzanne and Robert, and a really wonderful new book, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of Democracy. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.